Good morning, everybody. All right. All right, you there, then. I am sweaty. So I asked to have this fan here. I got, I got a fan, finally. <laughs> Thank you, my man. All right. Yeah, I can maybe turn it down a little. If it's there, you won't be able to get air into it. See, it's going to be blocking. Is there a way to get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be good. We'll see how this works. If it doesn't interfere. I'm a sweat hog anyways. Uh, but when we have a fun worship set like that, and I'm down there dancing away, then I really get sweaty. And uh, so just, you know, I, I, who cares? I don't care. So you look skanky. So what? So what? Who gives a rip? I just really think that it's, you know, that... that we got to take fun back uh, for the Lord. It, you know, people, really, to be free, to be free, I'm really feeling this, that, um, it, you know, there's times where we just re- are real meditative and quiet and serene and romance the Lord, and that's beautiful, and I love that. Uh, but there's a, a time to just have fun and celebrate His goodness. And uh, to whatever way is natural to you, that's the thing, you know, there's no criteria on this. But for some folks, uh, it's natural to express yourself, you know, very exuberantly. And, and, and uh, uh, that's me. When it, when, it, when it gets into, I just love to dance anyways. Um, and I just think that this should be the place where we can do that. We have this idea that church has got to be stiff and, you know, knotted up or whatever. And, and then folks can go to clubs and they can dance their brains out. But why should the clubs have all the fun? Yeah, they, they, we should have all the fun here. So... So I want you to know that, that when we're having a, a, a dance set like that, to feel free if you want to come up here and dance with us. Uh, last week we had a guy with a banner, and we're, we're, we're cool with that too. I mean, any, any way that expresses it, as long as you stay out of the screenway and don't get in the chairs, it's kind of a, keep the zone clear. But um, yeah, but you can, we can do it that way too. Uh, the main thing is uh, express outwardly what is true inwardly. And uh, yes, give your all. So we're in this series here. On uh, Kindred, looking for a tribe. How many people here this morning uh, really enjoy, consider yourself sort of theologically minded? How many, how many theologians, amateur or professional, do we have in the crowd that really get into theology? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in trouble here this morning. But you 10 people are going to really love this message. You're really going to get into it. <laughs> the rest of you, I don't know. I know, you know what, I, I, whether you're theologically minded or not, um, you know, I, that is, this is just where my, my brain goes. And this morning's stuff is uh, theological. It's a teaching time, lesson time. It is intense. Uh, it is, I'm just feeling fire on this thing. I just tweeted that a minute ago before I came out here. I'm feeling fire. Um, in fact, I'm sweating like I'm in a fire. But uh, uh, so just stay tuned. I, I really encourage you to apply your minds to this. This is important, foundational, revelatory stuff. So last week, we saw how God's people in Scripture have always been embedded in history. They're anchored in history. Um, God's will is for His people to be a tribe with a tradition, and they receive and pass on truths of God, the revelation of God. They bear witness to what God has done in history. Part of the way you bear witness to what God, who God is is by testifying about uh, how he's never left himself without a witness and how he's been working throughout history. Now, Woodland Hills Church has never been good at that. We, we've never been a people with, with, with a history, really, uh, who can hold up heroes and, and look to them. And we, in the leadership, have been sensing the last year or two that it's time we start doing that. We look for a tribe and a tradition. Now, we, with all the, or, the Orthodox Church Universal, we, we believe the historic Orthodox, we accept the historic Orthodox faith, uh, the ecumenical creeds, so we're broadly Orthodox in that way. But we have, and we've been more and more explicit about this, we used to kind of downplay this, but now we're coming out of the closet, that there are some atypical, distinctive beliefs and convictions that we have here. And uh, that we're passionate about. And so we've been looking for the tribe and the tradition that best expressed those atypical distinctive beliefs. And it turns out, and we didn't expect this, plan this, we're kind of surprised by it, but the tribe and the tradition that best expresses the distinctive convictions of Woodland Hills Church is the Anabaptists. Uh, and this is that group, as I mentioned last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that, that message. But these are the 16th century heirs of the dissenting tradition. 
And that's the tradition arising from the fourth century on that said that the institutional church is not, to a large degree at least, the manifestation of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. That church militant and triumphant that wanted to conquer the world in Jesus' name, the, the dissenters uh, were saying, no, that is not what Jesus came to do. And they were usually put to death by the institutional church. In fact, always, if they could be found, put to death, persecuted, burned alive, and all sorts of things. Uh, if you read the Martyr's Mirror, uh, or Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a good history of this uh, the persecution of the dissenting church. But the Anabaptists, this group that arose in the 16th century, starting in uh, 1525, they're the first group of dissenters that survived enough, despite the fact that they were put to death by the thousands in brutal, merciless ways, but they survived to pass on a tradition. And we see ourselves as heirs of that tradition. And there are some beautiful heroes that I could hold up in that dissenting tradition and say, that is what, uh, what we want to be. That's, that's us in the past. So today, uh, we looked also last week at, at the first distinctive that Woodland Hills holds that has been a part of this dissenting tradition. And that is that the Anabaptists saw that the kingdom is not, first and foremost, about believing the right things. It's about having a transformed life. And that it's not about believing in Jesus. Uh, it's about having a relationship with Jesus that results in a transformation that empowers believers to imitate Jesus, uh, to live like Jesus. And that's what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is that group of people that manifest what it looks like to be under the reign of God. And therefore, since Jesus embodied that, they look like Jesus dying on the cross for their enemies. The Anabaptists understood that the cross isn't just something that God did for us, but it's, not, it's a call to a certain kind of lifestyle. We're to live a cruciform life, a sacrificial life, a humble servant life. That's why the dissenting, the, the, the dissenting church said that the institutional church isn't the kingdom. Because the church that carries the sword and that tries to conquer people for Jesus, it doesn't look like Calvary. It doesn't look like the humble Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies. The kingdom, by definition, always looks like Jesus dying on the cross. So that was the first distinctive. The second distinctive, what we're going to talk about today is I think the most radical of the distinctives, it's the most atypical of the distinctives. It's the distinctive that is least shared by uh, common Christianity. But I think it's perhaps the most important of the distinctives. And it has to do with the way Jesus reframes everything in the Bible. It has to do with the shocking way that Jesus, when he shows up, he puts a, a new twist on things that radically reframes everything that led, led up to Jesus. It has to do with reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so since it's about this new twist that Jesus brings to the whole storyline of Scripture, we're entitling this message, The Twist. And it's got nothing to do with chubby checkers. It's got everything to do with, with uh, Jesus Christ. I have, I'll tell you, a clarity about this that I don't think I've, I've ever had before. Uh, a new layer of clarity. Just kind of, the coin fell in a slot. Um, in, in a way that, that uh, I haven't quite seen before. And so I'm feeling this intensely. I'm feeling this with a passion, with a fire, as I said before. And uh, I'm... Are you ready for some fire? Are you, are, are, are you awake? I'm ready for some fire here. Because uh, this is, this is, this is, this is uh, hot stuff. Now, if you've been here at Woodland Hills Church for any length of time, you've probably heard some of this before. But stay tuned because I'm praying that you get a clarity about it and maybe a passion about it, and see the importance of it that you haven't maybe seen before. And if you're new here to Woodland Hills, or you're new to our pod congregation, God bless the parishioners, um, this, could, this could be a game changer for you. This turns everything upside down. This reframes everything. Uh, it is, it, it's a radical uh, shift. Okay, so I want to start with a movie, and the, I, I need to give a spoiler alert. I don't like to spoil the endings of movies, uh, but I'm going to in this one. Because this movie's been around for 14 years, I think everyone here has either seen it or heard about it. It is the movie that has the greatest surprise ending of any movie in all of history. And that would be... Yes, The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense. Yes! Yeah, yeah. That, the ending of the movie is spectacular. Um, and we're going to see a little movie clip here in a moment. Bruce Willis is counseling this boy. This boy who sees dead people. I see dead people. 
The kid was great, super intense. He, uh, these dead people think they're still alive, and they only see what they want to see. That's why they're still hanging around. They can't move on. And um, so at the beginning of this movie, Bruce Willis has recovered from, or maybe recovered from, a wound that he got when a guy broke into his apartment and ended up shooting him. And uh, so he's just recovered, and now he's going to his first job back on the street is to counsel this young boy who sees dead people. We're going to watch a clip, a short little segment of the end of this movie, where the coin drops in the slot, and Bruce Willis, and therefore the audience, gets what's been going on throughout this whole movie. Let's watch it. Why did you leave me? I didn't leave you. saw the show and got to that point, I was just blown away. I was like, what? What just happened? Wait, it's disorienting. It's like, I, I, it, you have to reframe the entire movie. I, 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 could, I didn't see that coming. Now, my wife, Shelly, said she saw it coming, but she always says that. I, you know, sometimes she gets it right. <laughs> I was just blown away. You see, and you, you get a little bit of it here. He, he looks back and... and uh, he now sees that um, when he was at the restaurant, he thought he was there talking with his wife, but in fact, his wife didn't see him there. Uh, and they were, he thought they were eating breakfast together, but in fact, she was there alone. And he was always throughout the movie trying to get into that door to go downstairs, but it was locked. But now he sees that there's actually books there, but he only saw what he wanted to see. He was dead. Uh, he, he couldn't let that go. He wanted to live in the illusion that he was still alive. Um, and then at the end, when the Ring falls on the ground, the coin drops in the slot, and finally he gets what's been going on all along. He's been dead the entire movie. Wow. And see, the biblical story, believe it or not, is a lot like that. When Jesus shows up, he reframes everything. Most people did not see this coming. And we, as his followers, are called to... Read scripture in that reframe. It's a radical reframe. It's a beautiful reframe. Uh, and as we're going to see here, it changes everything. It's a game changer. Now, before I, I get into that, I, I want us to see the importance of this, how important it is to let Jesus reframe the entire biblical story. Here's a billboard uh, in Texas uh, last year. 
He says, pray for your, your president. Pray for Obama. Now, you might look at that and you think, oh, isn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, people want to pray for our president. That's great. And the Bible says we should pray for our leaders, and that's great. And, and so you're thinking that Psalms 109 is maybe this prayer of a protection for our president and, and bless him and, and, and give him peace and give him wisdom and things of that sort. So you go and look up Psalms 109, verse 8. You find out that it's not all that much of a blessing. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. <laughs> now, that maybe would just be kind of a cute little zinger, except that, remember, in those days back then, they didn't have elections. That's a fairly new phenomenon. The, way, the only way that a leader ever got out of office is by being assassinated. So the prayer to let his days be few is a prayer for somebody to assassinate this guy. And then if you go and look up the context of this verse, as you always should, well, it gets worse. Here's the next verse. May his children be fatherless, delightful, and his wife a widow, wonderful. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. Uh, may his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out f- uh, from the next generation. Praise God! Hallelujah! It makes me want to speak in tongues. Uh, see, I, when the New Testament commands us to pray for our leaders, I seriously doubt this is what it has in mind. May he be assassinated. May no one show kindness to the orphaned children. I don't care if you love Obama or you think he's the worst leader on the planet. Uh, kingdom people, this is not an appropriate prayer for any Jesus follower to pray. Amen. Or to put up on a billboard. Jesus told us to bless our enemies and, and to pray uh, for them and to do good to them. It's never something that should be on the lips of a follower of Jesus. But see, as our country is getting more and more polarized and the venom of the oppositions are, are is polluting the atmosphere, we're seeing more and more of this. this. It's being referred to as Bible hate speech. Isn't that wonderful? So now the Bible is being associated with hate speech. Um, and we're seeing more and more of this going on. I, I mentioned last year about the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention on a radio show, uh, and he mentions to this radio uh, host that he prays for Obama to die, and the radio host was just flabbergasted and said, why would you do such a hateful thing? And the guy responds by saying, because I believe the whole Bible, not just, not just the flowery parts. Praying for Obama to die. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. See, you find dozens of vengeful prayers like this in the Psalms. And see, there's unfortunately a long tradition of the church doing this. Whenever it was convenient to appeal to something in the Old Testament that Jesus forbids, you just jump over Jesus and grab it. Because it's convenient for you, you want it. You can do it in the name of believing the whole Bible, not just the flowery part. So you want to justify hating your enemies? Well, it's kind of hard to get that out of the teachings of Jesus. But hey, no problem. Just jump over Jesus and grab onto one of these spiteful, vengeful uh, psalms and, and claim you're believing the whole Bible, not just the flowery parts. You want to justify uh, getting, going to war or having, getting involved in personal violence? Uh, well, you can't find that in Jesus, can you? But no problem. Just jump over Jesus, grab some Old Testament verses, and claim you're just believing the whole Bible, not just the flowery parts. When oppressed people want to, want to lord over women, well, just jump over Jesus and grab the verse that suits your fancy and claim you're believing the whole Bible. Uh, Stuart Murray in the book Naked Anabaptist, which we're encouraging everybody who's aligned, who's part of Wilden Hills Church to read, because it expresses the heart of the Anabaptist movement, and it turns out it's the heart of Wilden Hills Church as well. Uh, but he calls this way of reading the Bible, uh, reading the Bible as a flat book. You read the Bible as though everything was equally authoritative, at least when you want it to be equally authoritative. Um, you read the Bible like a cookbook. You know, in a cookbook, it, it doesn't matter where a recipe is found, it's, it's going to have the same meaning. A recipe is a recipe. It doesn't matter if it's on page 1 or page 500. It's, it's the same recipe. And so to read the Bible this way is to read it in such a way that it doesn't matter where a passage is found, if, it, if it's asserting something that, that you want to be, have authoritative, you just grab it. Reading the Bible like a cookbook. Uh, this is unfortunately how most folks throughout history have uh, read uh, Scripture. But the Anabaptists said, no, this is not right. Uh, it, it, the Bible is not a uh, cookbook. It's, it's a, it's a storyline. 
Unfortunately, this is how most people today still read the Bible as a cookbook. That's why most people, throughout history and yet today, for most people, their view of God isn't exhaustively defined by Jesus Christ. Despite all the stuff we find in the New Testament about Jesus being the definitive revelation of God, if you see me, you see the Father, and he's the perfect expression of the Father's essence, and all of that, despite that, most people don't have a, a view of God that's exclusively defined by Jesus Christ. It's rather kind of a, a, a mushed-together uh, portrait, an amalgamation where you, Jesus is part of God, but you also grab onto other stuff found in the Old Testament, and you put it all together, and that's your picture of God. One of the most beautiful and precious and rare aspects of the treasure of the Anabaptist tradition is that they saw that that's not the way that we're supposed to read the book. The Bible is not a flat book. Uh, and this is the second atypical conviction that Wilderness Church shares with the Anabaptists. We agree with them that the Bible is not to be read like a cookbook, uh, that where a passage is, is all important. We agree that when Jesus shows up, he puts a new twist on everything. The Bible is a story. And in a story, where something is, is all important. Especially in a story like The Sixth Sense, where the, the end reframes everything. Uh, and a story like that, where a passage is, is all important. Jesus shows up and he puts a new twist on everything. So now, whether something is pre-twist or post-twist, makes all the difference in the world. You see, and the Anabaptists saw this. Uh, Jesus reframes everything. I can't exaggerate how radical this reframe is and how important it is that we get it. Uh, all the more so because it's so rarely gotten. Uh, if we accept this, what I'm going to be sharing right now, if you internalize it, it, it reframes everything. It changes how you read the Bible, what you get out of the Bible, how you apply the Bible, the God you find in the Bible, it reframes everything. See, when Jesus showed up, he was not at all what people expected the Messiah to be. Now, he did these miracles, incredible miracles, and he cast demons out of people. So he gave everybody reason to think he was the Messiah. And he claims, he made claims to, that were to the effect of him being the Messiah. But nothing else about him looked like the Messiah. He was the opposite of what people thought the Messiah was to be. Everyone thought the Messiah would come, or almost everybody thought the Messiah would come and support the Jewish nation and, and lead the Jewish nation in a violent uprising against the Roman oppressors and overthrow them and, and reinstate Israel as a sovereign nation. But Jesus, instead of leading a violent uprising against the Romans, he doesn't buy into any of that nationalism, proclaims a kingdom that transcends nationalism. Instead of leading a violent uprising against them, he tells everybody to love your enemies, which they know are the Romans, and to serve the enemies, which they know are the Romans. And then he ends up getting killed by the people he's supposed to be conquering. What kind of a Messiah is this? Everyone thought that the Messiah was going to uphold the law and support the righteous and crack down on the sinners. Jesus shows up and gives everyone reason to think that he's Messiah, but he hangs out with prostitutes. And, and he, he bends, he at least bends, if not breaks, some of the rules about the Sabbath. And, and, and then he chastises the, those who were regarded as the righteous keepers of the law. What kind of a Messiah is this? He's not doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. You talk about a surprising twist. Instead of having a law-upholding, uh, nationalistic, uh, Militant leader, we get a, a Messiah who uh, preaches a kingdom that's not based on the law, that isn't rooted in nationalism, that transcends nationalism, and that swears off all violence. It's crazy. What kind of a Messiah is this? No one or very few people saw this coming. But it actually gets crazier because this, this guy who gives everyone reason to think that he's Messiah but doesn't do any of the things that the Messiah is supposed to do, he goes around claiming that the whole Bible is about him. It's all about him. So he says this in John chapter 5. He says, I have a testimony that's weightier than John, John the Baptist. You Pharisees study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I'm saying? All scripture testifies about me. See, this is why folks who say Jesus is a good moral teacher, a great prophet, blah, 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 blah. They, they haven't read what he, the guy actually said. Good teachers and moral prophets don't go around saying, hey, the whole scripture is about me. Uh, th this, is, this is crazy. If, if he's not the son of God, he, he's a looney tune. Uh, you know, lock him up. It, 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 the, the shocking audacity to say all scripture is about me. And then he says he's the life of scripture. 
You think you can find life in Scripture by reading it, studying it diligently? Wrong. Unless it points to me, it doesn't have any life. Take Jesus out of the Bible and you've got a dead book. He is the life of Scripture. The audacity is absolutely incredible. You can't find life in Scripture unless you read it in a way that points to him. Shocking new twist here. But it gets even crazier. He says his testimony is weightier than John. Now that's audacious enough. But now remember, Jesus elsewhere says that John is the greatest of all the prophets leading up to him. Which would include, of course, everybody who wrote in the Old Testament. So do the math here. Jesus is greater than John, and John is greater than all the authors of the Old Testament. Conclusion, Jesus is greater, carries more weight, has more authority than anyone in the Old Testament. Who does this guy think he is? The audacity is just astounding. It means that Jesus, we have to regard his teachings and his example as having more weight, more authority than anything we find in the Old Testament. It means that Jesus is to be placed above everything we find in the Old Testament. And see, if you get that, then you understand why the last thing you should ever expect a disciple of Jesus to do is to jump over Jesus, to grab onto something that Jesus forbids just because you like it. It's a, the Anabaptists saw that as an act of betrayal. All the reformers at the time, folks, all of them said that Jesus is the center of Scripture. I can give you hundreds of quotes along those lines. But only the Anabaptists applied it in a consistent way and accepted the radical implications of this. Only the Anabaptists saw that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, the shockingly audacious Messiah, well then you can't read the Bible as a flat book. Only the Anabaptists saw that if you're going to follow this shockingly audacious Messiah, it means that you have to put him above everything else and give him more authority than anything you find in the Old Testament. But it gets even crazier than that. Not only did Jesus say he has more authority than anything in the Old Testament, not only did he say that he's the life of the Old Testament, but in a few places he actually replaced teachings of the Old Testament with his own teachings. His own teachings, which were opposite what you find in the Old Testament. And the irony is that the most important example of this is the very issue that most people jump over Jesus to grab onto a verse to to resolve. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a minute. He says this in Matthew 5. And I've read this verse a lot the last six months, but it's so important and it's so easily ignored. Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. The word there is anthestami, and it doesn't mean to do nothing. It just means don't respond to force with force. Don't respond in kind. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And then a few verses later, and he's still responding. He's still replacing this this, uh, law in the Old Testament with his own teaching. and, And he says this, but I tell you, love your enemies. They're thinking Romans. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Holy Spirit, help us to accept the radical implications of this. You've heard it said, Jesus says. That refers back to an Old Testament law. It's found three times, as a matter of fact. Uh, Here's the Levitical version of it. Anyone who injures a neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. No, is to be. It's a requirement. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who is inflicted the injury, the one who has inflicted the injury, must suffer the same injury. This is required. This is mandated. This is a law we find in the Old Testament. Now, I've, I've read hundreds of scholars who have said, try to argue that when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, he's not repudiating, repudiating anything in the Old Testament. He's repudiating traditions that are based on the Old Testament. And that's true for some of the things that Jesus refers to when he says, you've heard it said. But it's not true of this one. This one, I just showed you, is explicitly three times in the Old Testament. It's a requirement. It's a law. In fact, this isn't just a law, folks, but this is what's called the lex telionis. It is the uh, principle of, of just retribution. It is the foundational principle of justice that runs throughout the entire Old Testament. So Jesus is here saying that to be a follower of his, you need to reject, repudiate, not follow this foundational law of justice that really weaves the whole Old Testament system of justice together. You want a a radical twist? Well, here it is. Because Jesus is saying that 
The sign of being a child of God. He says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So the sign of being a child of God. They all, he puts all of the weight on this. It's almost like he's saying it's a precondition. If you want to be considered a child of God, then you have to be willing to break the law of the Old Testament. Not just any law, but the foundational law of justice in the Old Testament. To put it the other way, if you obey that law in the Old Testament, that foundational principle of justice in the Old Testament... You're not a child of God. You want a radical twist? No, I know right now our people's heads are spinning. You know, because it maybe confronts a lot of your theology. I got it. It scrambles a lot of things. But I've learned over time this lesson that if my theology conflicts with Jesus, too bad for my theology. Jesus wins, all right? You got to let, you know, let it be radical. This, show, where's this wrong? It's, it's right there. It, it's radical. See, the only Anabaptists were the only ones who saw how radical this was and were willing to accept it. They saw, the Anabaptists saw that you can't place anything on a par with Jesus. You can't put anything in the Old Testament uh, in a position where it can compete with Jesus or qualify the teachings and example of Jesus. Certainly not ever replace the teachings of exa- or example of Jesus. They're the only ones who saw that if you're going to call yourself a disciple of this shockingly audacious Messiah... It means you must allow Jesus to trump everything. Uh, Jesus, you must see that he is the point of everything. He is the interpretation of everything. He's the meaning of everything. He's the essence of everything. He is the one to whom everything points, and therefore nothing but nothing but nothing should ever be allowed to to compromise or to cloud up, to foggy up the revelation that we find in him. The Anabaptists got this. No one else did. And if you get this, you realize the last thing that you'd ever expect a follower of Jesus to do is to jump over Jesus and grab onto something in the Old Testament because you like it, even though Jesus forbids it. Anabaptists said that that is an act of unfaithfulness uh, to Jesus Christ. And this is why it enraged everybody else. It enraged the Reformers, the Catholics, it enraged them because it indicted them. They wanted to be able to appeal to the Old Testament to justify their use of the sword. Now, the Anabaptists are right. They are wrong. What they're doing is unfaithful. And... So in the eyes of the reformers and everybody else, the Anabaptists had to die. And the irony is that then they used the sword to do it, or they used drowning, or they used burning alive to do it, and thousands and thousands were, were, were put to death. The Anabaptists got this. It's an important point to get. Uh, they saw how radical this new twist is. Now, Paul and the author of Hebrews, didn't, they saw how radical this was. Uh, most people since haven't, but they saw it. One of the ways they express this is by showing, by comparing Jesus and the Old Testament law to the uh, difference between a reality and a shadow. Reality and a shadow. So Paul says in Colossians 2, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or even a Sabbath day, which is wild. That's one of the Ten Commandments. We're talking about a radical new twist here, folks. Don't let anyone judge you about that. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is Christ. You want reality? Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. The author of Hebrews says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. If you want reality, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Now here's the thing. If you just read the Old Testament on its own, you'd never get the impression that the law is, is simply a shadow. It looks like a reality. It looks like the, the real God and the real will of God. You get that impression. It's only in the light of Christ, when Christ shows up, that we see that it, in fact, is a shadow. You only see the shadow when the reality shows up. Um, it's just like, you know, if you read the Old Testament on its own, it seems like it is reality. Just like Bruce Willis, it seems like he's alive throughout the entire movie. It's only the surprising twist at the end when her, the ring falls on the ground that he realizes and the audience realizes what's been going on all along. So also, it's only when Jesus shows up and reveals what God really is like and reveals the real will of God, and when Jesus turns everything on its head, it's only then that we see what God's been up to all this time leading up to Christ. It's been shadow activity, not reality. Now we've got reality. If you want to go further in that shadow activity, I I had a sermon on this last year called Shadowlands. Check it out. Now, Paul takes us deeper into the shadowy aspect of this law. When he says this, and follow this, this is a little bit complicated, but it's beautiful, it's intense, it's powerful, it's so important. In Galatians 3, Paul says this, If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Duh. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Look at that phrase. 
locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the law, you read the Old Testament, it looks like it's there to make us right with God. And now Paul's saying no. What it does is it locks us up in sin. Why? So that it will eventually uh, believe. Well, we'll see the necessity of faith. And Paul continues, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up, locked up in sin, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that reality is here, we're no longer under the shadow. Holy Spirit, help us and everyone listening through podcasts and other means to, to, to get this. Not just with our brains, but to receive it. What Paul is saying is this. The purpose of the law was to lock us up in sin. All right? To make, it, to, to make our, our fallen nature explicit. And the reason it was there to lock us up in sin is to lead us to an awareness that the only way we can be righteous is by having faith in a Savior. The law was given not to show us how we can be right with God, but to show us how we can't ever be right with God. In order that we'll finally see that the only way we're going to be right with God is by trusting in the real Savior, Jesus Christ. It's like God had to lock us up in the shadow of our sin before he could free us by the reality of Jesus Christ, the Savior. You following this? So while the law is good, and while you can learn a lot of good things about the law from the law, The ultimate purpose, Paul says here in Galatians 3, is to serve as a negative object lesson to lead us to Christ, which is precisely why it's a shadow and why Christ is the reality. Now, the same is true of nationalism and violence in the Old Testament. In fact, what I'm arguing in this book that I'm working on, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, is that the law, nationalism, and violence, they're all part of the same thing. You just saw this when Jesus uh, quoted the eye for eye, tooth for tooth part of the law. That's the foundation of it all. The law and the violence and the nationalism are all wrapped up together. And so the law and the nationalism and the violence, they don't show us how to get right with God or, or how to bring the kingdom. They show us how we can't be right with God and how we can't bring the kingdom. That's why when Jesus, the reality shows up, he proclaims a kingdom that's not based on the law, that transcends nationalism and that swears off violence. He, he, what the kingdom he brings is the antithesis, the opposite of that, which is what you would now expect when you want to realize that that is not there to show us how to be right with God, but how we can't be right with God. So when Jesus shows up and shows us how we can be right with God, of course it's the opposite of what we found in the negative object lesson. Are you tracking with me here? This is the reframe that comes with the, the radical twist that Jesus brings. But Again, you'd never know that reading the Old Testament by itself. You'd never get the impression that the law and the nationalism and the violence are 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 there as a negative object lesson. Now you can find clues once you once you uh, once we get the reality in Christ, you find clues, but you never know that reading it on its own. It's only in light of the surprising twist that Bruce Willis gets that he's been dead the whole time. And it's only in light of the surprising twist that we get. That, that what's been going on this whole time is shadow activity, not the reality. And it's shadow activity that's there to lead us to the reality, which is Jesus Christ. Which is why the Anabaptists were saying passionately and laying down their lives to proclaim that we've got to interpret everything in the Bible through the lens of Jesus. We've got to interpret everything in the light of this reframe. We've got to look at everything through the prism of Jesus Christ. Because he is the one reality. And so he is the criteria by which we decide whether anything else is real or not or where there's a shadow that's intended to point us to the reality. That's the reframe. It's a radical, beautiful reframe that comes with Jesus Christ. Now, why didn't people get this? this is a, I'll end with this question. Why didn't people get this? Uh, well, why, why was it so rare? Why did the other reformers miss this point? Ask yourself this question. Why did Bruce Willis not realize he was dead until the very end? And the answer is that what kept him from seeing that he was dead is that he didn't want to see it. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't let go of that. He wanted the illusion that he was alive. Dead people only see what they want to see. Right? And so Bruce Willis couldn't let that go. To discover reality, you've got to let go of the shadow. The Anabaptists had a teaching on this. Uh, in various ways they taught this. That the heart, the, the mind can never see what the heart is not willing to obey. 
Uh, scholars call this the hermeneutics of obedience. Uh, that to see a truth, you've got to be willing to obey the truth. And the more you obey it, the more you see it. The more clarity you get. If you're not willing to obey it, you can't see it. Uh, it, it you miss it. And so the Anabaptists believe that their peers... Um, they couldn't accept that the violence of the Old Testament was there as a shadow to point us as a negative object lesson to Christ. Jesus says, you'll live, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That's the negative object lesson. Have you got it yet? And then Jesus is going to come and offer a kingdom that's totally different than that. Uh, they, their peers wanted to hang on to that. They, they, they wanted to, to appeal to that to justify their use of the sword. And that's why they couldn't see how central the loving enemies and nonviolence is to the teachings of Jesus. It's the same with like legalists. They, they don't want to accept that um, Jesus brings a kingdom that's not based on, on, on uh, the rigid adherence to laws. They like the control and the security that legalism gives. So they just don't see how, how, how central grace is in the New Testament. Or people who are like, hyper-patriotic and nationalistic and want to bring God in on their patriotism um, they, they, they don't want to let go of the nationalism of the Old Testament. They like being able to say God's on our side and he plays this nationalistic game. So they just don't see how central this transnational character of, of, of the kingdom that Jesus brings is. They don't see it. You've got to be willing to obey a truth before you can um, uh, see it. And so what the Anabaptists Baptists are teaching is that it's only when you are willing to submit to Christ, only when we're not willing to allow anything to compromise or qualify the examples and teachings of Christ, the one reality, only then can we see him as the pure reality and everything else is a shadow. It's only when you're willing to submit to the reality that you can see the shadow for being a shadow. Uh, it's not surprising that, that the only ones who were willing to fully embrace Jesus' teachings about loving enemies and nonviolence, they were the only ones who saw how central this is in the teachings of Jesus. And therefore that everything else leading up to it was a shadow. And they were the only ones who really saw how wrong it is to jump over Jesus and to grab onto stuff in the Old Testament just because you like it, even though Jesus forbids it. So folks, here's the thing. This, this is the all-important second distinctive conviction that Woodland Hills Church shares with the Anabaptist tradition. Everything in the Bible has to be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a cookbook. You can just pluck out verses wherever you want without any consideration for where they are. No, it is a story with a surprising, radical, beautiful twist at the end. And everything in the story has got to be interpreted through the lens of that twist. Whether you'll see this or not depends to a large degree on whether you're willing to submit to the reality of Jesus Christ. And the reality of his teachings, including the teaching and the example of loving enemies and swearing off violence. Now, here's the thing. Whenever I say this, I'm aware, here's what I found, is folks, as soon as you talk about nonviolence and loving enemies, uh, some people immediately go to these borderline questions. Like, well, what about the military? And what about the police force? And what if someone breaks into my house and I need to defend myself? What about, what about, what about? And then what all too often happens throughout history and yet today is that people using their common sense say, well, since I obviously could, uh, I obviously should use violence there, well, then Jesus couldn't be meaning this. But then if, if I could use violence there, well, what about here? What about here? What about here? And before you know it, we've reasoned ourselves out of, uh, out of any meaning to Jesus' teachings. It ends up being that Jesus, when he says love your enemies, he's just talking about grouchy neighbors or something. We miss the whole beauty and the radicalness of, of this thing. Here's the thing. Anabaptists in the past have sometimes been legalistic, uh, legislating what people do when it comes to violence and military and things like that. But all the Anabaptists I talk to today understand that the world is an ambiguous place and people are at different places in life and have different perspectives on things. And, and, and there, there's an ambiguity that we've got to honor. And so while they preach the principle of loving enemies and nonviolence unconditionally and passionately, they don't try to legislate how people apply it. Because there's a lot of ambiguity on this thing. That's what, those questions about uh, military and police and, and what if someone breaks into my house, those are legitimate, legitimate questions. But see, there's room for disagreement about some of that stuff. And people are going to apply it in different ways. What we've got to see is that this teaching on loving enemies and nonviolence, 99.9% .9 of it isn't about resolving those borderline questions, those extreme questions, that will happen to very few of us. It's mainly about how we, how we live our life today. 
How do we apply this to our life today? And so rather than going to these borderline questions, these marginal questions, and, and theorizing your way out of obeying uh, uh, Christ, I encourage us, kingdom people, to embrace fully, embrace fully this teaching and commit to living this life. Uh, and, and then we'll discuss these borderline questions as, as we proceed and allow grace for people to disagree. So the question then is this, what does it look like in your life here now where you actually live to love your enemies and to swear off violence and to turn your other cheek? Ask the Holy Spirit right now to give you, show you a person who uh, has something against you, a person that you're in conflict with, a person that you have trouble loving, a person that rubs you wrong, pushes your buttons, uh, you know, a person that that, that you you have a hard time uh, being Christ-like towards. Get a picture of them in your mind. Here's the important question is, are you willing now to commit to loving that person, to serving that person in appropriate ways. Now, if a person abused you, you know, maybe you need to keep a distance, but ask the Spirit for appropriate ways of loving them, praying for them at the very least. Um, what does it look like for you to do good to them as Jesus commands? That office worker who's gossiping behind your back. What would happen if you remembered their birthday and brought them a birthday cake? I Think of... Ask the Spirit to show radically subversive ways in which you can love your enemies and uh, turn the other cheek and not respond uh, in the way that they're coming at you. See, this is, here, here's why this is so central, folks, is doing this, this is so central, obeying this command, applying it to our life, to our day-to-day enemies, rather than living out there in theoretical land, uh, no, uh, living in this and applying it to our life, this is what forms our character. This is what changes our perspective. As we obey this light, the light that we have, we see more light. This is how we grow. And this is how we keep ourselves pure from the pollution of the evil of the world. Several years ago, actually, it was 1997, um, a lot of you know this. I, I believe in the uh, ontological reality of possibilities, in case you were wondering. Uh, that that uh, the future is partly composed of possibilities. And some people see that as a heresy. So in 1997, I'm teaching at Bethel College in the theology department, and a pastor gets disturbed by my belief in possibilities and decides that I shouldn't be teaching at Bethel. So he rallies up hundreds of pastors, gets this movement going. The wagon starts circling. They start sending letters out to all these churches about my heresy and, and about my theology and about my character. 98% of what they said was, uh, it was, was a misrepresentation, but no one came to me and asked what I actually believe. They just knew what they wanted to say, I believe, to get people to be all hot and bothered about this thing. And they uh, boycott the bookstores. Any bookstore that would sell my books, they, they got this nationwide boycott going on. They sent letters to the publishers to stop publishing my books. They threatened some lawsuits and all this other kind of stuff. I'm getting angry as this is going on. This is irritating. And I remember that, to the, I, that there's this time where uh, the, a publisher called me and said, told me about this lawsuit that they were threatening. It was a crazy, crazy lawsuit too, but I, who cares? Um, and I was so angry. I mean, these people are, are just assassinating my character and my reputation and, and, and my theology. They're, and I, I think, in fact, I know that some of them, they know that what they're saying is not true. Uh, and so this is getting irritating. And that very day, that very night, the Lord says to me in no uncertain terms, Greg, um, you are to pray for the ringleader of this movement. Uh, pray blessing on him every day for the next year. I had to crucify myself to do that. It's like, and at first you're just doing it as an act of obedience. But see, here's the thing, here's the thing. That act, I obeyed, I did that. That changed me. Uh, it broadened my perspective. God gave me some of his heart for this person. I began to see them through a lens other than my own anger. Uh, you know, doing this, it, it blessed the person, because I'm praying blessing on him and his family and his ministry and all that stuff. It blesses him, and that's a good thing, and it furthers the kingdom, and that's a good thing, and his act of obedience is a good thing in and of itself. But the main good thing that happened as a result of this is that it kept my heart from being defined by the evil that was being done to me. You see, it... it it's the only way. It's the only way. The only way. To, if you respond in kind, anger with anger, force with force, now you've been polluted by the evil that's against you. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, this is for our sake more than anything else. It's the only way to keep from being polluted. You've got to respond to evil with good. And, and, and see, as I did that, here, as I did that, 1997, 
I then it was the first time that I now saw the end of this year, I saw what I preach so frequently now, the centrality, how centrally important it is to love your enemies and to swear off violence. I had never seen this before. But see, as you obey, you see. Clarity comes with obedience. And so I call on us. The theoretical questions are fine. But will we commit to living this day to day? Praying for those that we our fallen nature wants to curse. Not praying a a Psalms 109 kind of a prayer. No, praying good on them, blessing on them. Will you commit to that? Will you commit to that? Because Jesus says, that is the sign of a child of God. That you may be children of your Father. This is what it looks like. So there's two people that all kingdom people should be praying for. Number one, whoever is your enemy, whatever that looks like. Whoever has ought against you, whoever it is. And secondly, as I said a couple weeks ago, somebody who's lost. Because we're ambassadors of the kingdom. Somebody should be on your heart that you're praying for to win them into the kingdom. And then now as we read the Bible, can we commit to reading it, not as a cookbook, but through the lens of Jesus Christ, the one reality. Everything that conflicts with him is a shadow. All right? I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit now seals this on our heart. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever, I, I just pray you come up here and pray with these folks and allow them to minister to you. Pray with me here. Abba, Father, I thank you, God, for everybody in this auditorium and everybody listening through podcasts, our pod listeners, our pod congregation. Father, I pray that you seal this by the power of your Spirit on our hearts, this commitment, which is the, the, the all-important center of what it is to be a child of God, the sign of a child of God. Seal it, God, on our heart. Give us the discipline, the, the, the all-important discipline of praying for our enemies, loving our enemies, serving our enemies, doing good to our enemies, manifesting your cruciform character to all people at all times. And God, with that love then, we read the Bible, and we pray that you open it up to us this, that, to see how it all testifies of Jesus Christ. It all exalts our crucified Lord and Savior. Thank you, God, for your revelation. Help us to be a people who, who receive this tradition and pass on this tradition. To your glory in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.